you please open your Bibles to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And please find also in your Psalter hymnals, Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism. That can be found on page 17 in the back. A little later on, we're going to be using questions and answers 27 and 28 to publicly profess what we believe concerning God's providence. Mark 4 and Lord's Day 10. Well, this morning, as we commune around God's Word, we're going to think about storms. If you found your place in the book of Mark, you should have encountered an account about a storm. The key figure in this storm is Jesus, so most translations have a heading employed which acknowledges him in connection with the storm which has been written about. The heading in the ESV version for which I will be reading this morning is Jesus calms the storm. Children, this morning uh, we're going to be looking at really two kinds of storms. One kind of storm is a storm that we can see with our eyes. Maybe you've been out in Lake Michigan before and you've seen a storm arise. The waves get big and they really can be quite frightening, especially if you're close to the shore or, or on a boat. The other type of storm we're going to be thinking about this morning is a storm that goes on inside of us. This storm that uh, we're going to be thinking about in particular uh, that we encounter in the lives of Jesus' apostles was a storm of strong feelings. The the strong feeling that they were experiencing was fear. They were scared for their lives. They thought the storm and the waves were going to kill them. (laughs) And to make things worse, they didn't think Jesus cared because he was on the boat with him, with them sleeping during this storm. That's why they woke him up and said in verse 38, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing or are going to be destroyed or killed? Now, you think this feeling of fear on the inside of the disciples would have gone away after Jesus woke up and calmed the storm. But did it make the feeling of fear go away? What does it say happened in verse 41 after Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was great calm, it says, and they, the disciples, were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples were scared of the storm, but they were very much afraid or filled with great fear when they realized that Jesus has the authority and the power to rule over nature and even the wind and the sea obey him. Before we get into the word this morning, I want us to think about Jesus for a moment. And not only Jesus, but also God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Almighty God. Children, we live in a day when God is not feared. People come before the face of God in a very casual kind of way. They don't fear God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Please understand what's being conveyed in Scripture and what's not being conveyed. What's not being conveyed is we're to be walking around like little puppy dogs... Uh, with our tails between our legs, scared of God, scared that he's going to, uh, to come and, and, and every time we sin or make a mistake, he's going to come and just wipe us out. He's going to beat us up. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about. The type of fear we're talking about 
is the thing that's going to happen when we really think, for example, what we're doing this morning. When we think about the fact that we have entered into the sanctuary of heaven where 10,000 upon 10,000 of angels are worshiping God in the splendor of His holiness. And the seraphim are calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. We're thinking of this sense of fear, this, this sense of awe that came upon Isaiah as he wrote about the seraphim worshiping God. When he says, woe to me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and I've seen, I've seen God. God doesn't leave him in that scared-to-death state. He provides comfort for him. But you see, Isaiah and all the prophets and all the apostles and all the true congregations of the saints throughout time have properly revered God. And we need to do that And pray that God will help us do that in this day when God is treated like just anybody else. He's God. He is God. Let's go before the Lord and ask now that the Holy Spirit will help us honor God. That the Holy Spirit will help us honor Him by listening intently to what he has to say to us through the word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we have to admit we do not revere you as we ought many times. We thank you that we don't have to fear you as a harsh taskmaster. But Lord, help us to always properly revere you. We pray for us as a congregation that you'll help us to to stay the course on reverent worship. So much of worship today is becoming casual. Big coffee shop time. Oh Lord, help us to revere you this morning in a particular way. by giving us hearts that are ready to hear you speak to us and then to respond to that with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The word of God is recorded in Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. Listen attentively as it's read in our midst this morning. On that day, when evening had come, He, Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Thus far the reading of God's infallible and inerrant holy word. Brothers and sisters in Christ, each one of us experienced different types of storms with varying levels of intensity throughout our lives. 
Uh, these storms arise in different ways in each of our lives. Uh, sometimes these storms arise deep within the sanctum of our bodies. They, they arise within that place where we live in communion with the Holy Spirit. Some may be experiencing such a storm today in the form of severe depression or anxiety. Other storms arise within a person's body. One's brain that used to work so well now has severe episodes of memory failure. A grandpa or a grandma goes to the store to shop for groceries and can't find the car in the parking lot or the way home afterwards, and that's scary for them. Others who are not abusing alcohol or drugs experience severe frightening hallucinations that are very real and scary to them. And then there are the severe storms of bodily health and disease. The overactive thyroid that will at times make one experience severe symptoms of anxiety. Or the underactive or hypoactive thyroid that produces symptoms of depression. And then there's the unexpected heart attack or stroke. Or the unwelcome report from the doctor, you have cancer. In IRBC's scripture-based counseling training, training model, we classify these types of problems or storms as internal dominant domain problems. They are those which have their origin within our souls or our bodies. Along with the severe storms that occur within our bodies are those that occur outside of them. IRBC's model places these storms or problems in a category called the external dominant domains. There are numerous storms which occur within the context of the divinely ordained institutions of the family, church, or civil government. There can be soul-wrenching storms that arise between a husband and a wife or between parents and their children. Sometimes severe storms arise between relatives. Some of these storms become so severe that members of the same family can hardly stand to look at each other. There are also severe storms within congregations where saints who used to worship and enjoy sweet fellowship together are now painfully at odds with each other. Devastating storms that occur within the intimate institutions of the family and the church are storms that must not be allowed to continue. They must not be allowed to continue. Whenever you or I are at odds with another person in the congregation, another family member, we need to ask for forgiveness and we need to forgive. Sounds like a very simple thing to do, doesn't it? But I think we all know that there are times when that is not so easy to do. It was not so easy for me to forgive my dad, who is a severe drunkard and alcoholic who abused my mother and started to strangle her to death, and this hand was the hand that removed his hand from her neck to save her life. But it was not an option for me to forgive my dad. By God's grace and time, I forgave him, and I found something very interesting happened when that, when that took place. You see, every time I saw a picture of my dad or every time uh, I heard something of my dad, I would have this, this feeling within my heart. It was a feeling of bitterness toward him. My dad lived a thousand plus miles away from me, but whenever I thought of him, bitterness, angst within. I had to forgive my dad. He didn't ask for my forgiveness, by the way. I had to ask 
God to help me forgive him. Now listen, this forgiveness thing is a very important thing, brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes we take that kind of casually. I really appreciated what our brother Pastor Voss said a while back when he was talking about this. He said, if you can't even go out for a cup of coffee with somebody in this congregation or a family member, there's something wrong. And that's the truth. There's something wrong. Jesus says very clearly about the importance of forgiveness in Matthew 6, verse 15. He says, listen, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's pretty serious language. We need to forgive. And we need to be forgiven. storms. These storms and relationships will be diminished. They'll go away. And then there are severe storms that arise within the severe of, of, of civil government. Storms that can become so severe, severe that, that citizens within cities, states, and nations are at odds or at war with each other. We are certainly in the midst of many such storms today. And by the way, these storms are not going to go away Due to the work of our politicians. They're not going to go away. They're not going to go away by banishing the Ten Commandments. From our public schools. From the market square. They're not going to go away. As churches are kept from sharing the gospel. They're not going to go away. The only thing that can make citizens within a nation live at peace with each other and nations to be at peace with each other is the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. We need to pray that people will look to Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. And we need to pray fervently that this will occur. He's the only hope for the United States of America or any other country on the face of this earth. And we have the hope in our hands, the hope of the gospel. We need to be sharing that gospel, friends. Well, we've looked a little bit at some of the different types of storms with which we have to deal. Because each one of us is either currently in the midst of a storm or will likely experience a storm sometime in the future, it's very important that we listen carefully to what God has to say to us about them. We're going to use that little word listen as a springboard to dive into the context of our text. Jesus uses that little word at the beginning of chapter 4. Children, I want you to find that word in your Bibles that you hopefully have open before you. If you find that word listen at the beginning of verse 3, you will notice that it's followed by an exclamation mark. Listen, exclamation mark. As you older children know, a mark... An exclamation mark is used in writing to express strong emotion. It usually is used in commands and declarations. The importance of listening when Jesus is teaching us through the mouthpiece of Scripture is so, so very important. Jesus emphasized the importance of listening to the crowd he was teaching at the time. The text we have taken under our consideration was written. Please read along with me beginning at verse 1. It says, and again, he, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him. So that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things and parables, and in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, children, listen, young people, listen. Uh, young adults and 
Adults of all ages, listen. Listen to hear Jesus speak to you personally as you gather with others to publicly worship him each Sunday. Listen, because the proclamation of the gospel is critically important. It provides deliverance from hell for the unbeliever. It provides wisdom, knowledge, and discernment for, for these increasingly deceptive days in which we live. Oh, how we need to listen. By the way, sometimes the listening piece is directly related to how we structure our nights before worship on Sunday. You staying up late at night? Come to church bushed? We're going to bed at a decent time. So we've done what we can do for our physical bodies. Now again, as we confessed our dependence on the Holy Spirit earlier to quicken us, we need Him to quicken us, we still need to be responsible in the way we live our lives. We need to listen. We need to listen to the gospel because it provides great hope, hope for today and bright hope for tomorrow for the believer. So as look at the broader context of verses 35 through 41 of chapter 4, those verses which have been selected for our text, we notice that Jesus is teaching a large crowd. In fact, the crowd is so large that he got into a boat to better enable all of them to listen to him teach. The first half of verse 2 tells us about the manner in which he taught many of the things he shared with the large crowd that day. Children, please read along with me at verse 2. It says, and he, Jesus, was teaching them many things in parables. Now, before we get into the heart of the lesson provided by our text, it's important that we understand the purpose of the parables which Jesus was teaching the crowd. Verses 10 through 12 provide for us an explanation of that purpose. Please read these verses along with me. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those on the outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." Was Jesus advocating an alternative form of teaching by using parables as he taught this crowd? No, typically parables were not the primary method used to impart truth throughout the pages of the scriptures. Uh, Parables in the Bible are a form of teaching wherein there is typically a connection between spiritual truth and common practice. While parables explain spiritual truths to the followers of the Lord, they also have the purpose of disguising truth to those hard-hearted hearers who oppose Christ. Properly understanding a parable, or as far as that goes, anything which is recorded in the 66 books of the Bible which make up the canon of Scripture requires that a person has a regenerated heart. It requires that a person is born again. A person who is born again is one who has responded to the gospel by faith and as a result is reconciled to God. As it was then, so it is today. For those who have not been reconciled to the Heavenly Father by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, everything they read in Scripture is like a parable which is unexplained to them. They don't get it because they are outside of the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says that the natural person, that is the person who has not been born again, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. 
And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There may be some here today or who may be listening to this sermon by some other means who have been baptized, who have made public profession of faith, or have gone to church most, if not all of their lives. Maybe some have even served as Sunday school or catechism teachers, youth group or adult group leaders. There may be some who have even served as office bearers, yet who have not yet personally embraced Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior by faith. Some, if not many of such folks, have probably done many good or even great things in their families, in this or their respective churches or their civil communities. What a shocking surprise it will be for them to hear these terrible words fall from the mouth of Jesus after they breathe their last breath. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Most of us have heard these earth-shattering, soul-searching words of Jesus that are recorded in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Many of us have heard these words. But have we honestly examined ourselves with judgment day accountability in the light of them? Have you, have I, heeded the exhortation given in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith? Have you, have I, with heartfelt sorrow, said before the face of a thrice holy God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. I deserve your righteous wrath. I confess that I'm a sinner before you. I repent of my sins. And I believe in Jesus Christ by faith. And I commit myself from this day forward to walk in the light of your commands. That is in the light of the Ten Commandments. So help me God. If you've taken this step of faith, praise God. You are saved. And you will never receive that terrible declaration. For as Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is, thou, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have not done that, young people, if you have not done that, I didn't say, if you're doing a good job of doing a dog and pony show for mom and dad and the people of the church. No. I said, if you haven't done that, if you have not yet recognized your sinfulness and gone before the face of God and say, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner and believe in Jesus Christ by faith. Do it today. I'll never forget the day. I'll never forget it. When I was teaching high school, one day a young man was in my class. The next day he was dead. I don't think he was planning on dying that day. Let today, let today be the day of your salvation.
Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. When you repent, your mind, your heart will be open and you'll read that Bible and that Bible will come alive to you. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you're not going to just come to church and formally sing your songs. You're going to sing your songs to God from your heart. Because you've been saved. So wonderful to be a true child of God. What we looked at and made application of the truth found in the broader context of chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark. Now may the Holy Spirit be pleased to give us as Jesus Christ's disciples understanding into our text under the heading of the manner in which Jesus exercises his rule over all of life's storms. We'll endeavor in the remaining time, and if you're watching your clock, you shouldn't be. We'll endeavor to see how he exercises his rule sovereignly. He exercises his rule personally, and he exercises his rule compassionately. First, let us understand how Jesus exercises his rule sovereignly. And when used as an adjective, the term sovereign is used to describe a person who possesses supreme or ultimate power. Jesus demonstrated his ultimate power as almighty God and creator of the universe and everything in it by rebuking the wind and saying to the sea, peace, be still. Now it's important to take a couple things into consideration as we think about Jesus exercising his sovereign rule over the wind and raging sea in the episode of real life history we have focused open before us. The first is that Jesus Christ exercised his sovereign rule over the winds and the raging sea as one who was both God and man. And we see his humanity expressed by the fact that he was tired, even exhausted, and in need of rest. Having spent a long day teaching a large crowd on a boat offshore the Sea of Galilee, it was his need for bodily rest that motivated him to utter to his disciples what he said in the second half of verse 35. What's he say? Let us go across to the other side. Jesus was was dead tired of all those people on the side of the seashore. And if that was not enough, it says in verse 36 that after his disciples took him in the boat just as he was, that is, with the clothing he was wearing while he was teaching, he didn't even have time to change into warmer clothing for the evening boat ride, there were other boats with him. Jesus couldn't even fully escape people by getting into a boat and traveling away from the large crowd which was gathered on the seashore. So he goes to the stern or back of the boat and reclines on a cushion and he falls asleep. It's while he is asleep on that cushion that the great windstorm spoken about in verse 37 arose and waves start breaking into the boat. It's really quite amazing, isn't it? One minute we see Jesus fully human, beat, wiped out, sleeping on a cushion in the stern of a boat. The next minute, we see Jesus Christ as almighty God. Jesus Christ taking rule over the storm that was in the sea. What an awesome Savior we serve. He's both fully God and fully man. And as fully God and fully man, he rules sovereignly over the storms in each one of our lives. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't know where you're at. I know where some of you are in terms of struggles. If you're struggling right now, whether it's over the loss of a loved one, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a loss of a job, whether it's a health problem, whatever it is, this has been ordained by God. God is sovereignly ruling over it. Jesus Christ is sovereignly ruling 
over that storm. Just as in love, God predestined your adoption, Christian, so did God in eternity predestine the storms that you and each one of us have in our lives. And he's going to use those storms for his glory and our good. Romans 8, 28 promises that all things work together, including the tumultuous storms God has ordained for each of us. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. The Heidelberg Catechism brings to expression the fact that all things come to us from the fatherly hand of God in its teaching of the doctrine of God's providence. In a moment, we're going to stand and recite together questions and answers 27 and 28 of Lord's Day 10 as a public profession of our faith, stating that we believe that nothing comes to us by chance, but instead by God's providence. And for this reason, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no thing, storm or anything else, or creature, evil angel, or man can separate us from his love. I'll read the question, and we respond as a congregation of the answer. Please stand. Page 17 in the back of the Psalter hymnal. What do you understand, congregation, by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. All things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. You may be seated. Aren't we blessed to have the Reformed Confessions? Aren't we blessed? I was reared in the Roman Catholic Church and went through a number of different churches. And then by God's grace, the confessions. Oh, to be sure they're not scripture. We say as reformed believers, sola scriptura. But the the scriptures are so beautifully summarized and faithfully taught in the historic Reformed confessions. Brothers and sisters in Christ, being confessional today is so very important in light of the proliferation of false teachers we see today. Seems like every time we recognize one, there's another one. The Reformed confessions keep us rooted in the Orthodox faith. Let us never forsake our heritage. Children, never be ashamed of being a Reformed Christian. Never be ashamed of the three forms of unity. When you go to catechism and Sunday school class, you thank God for those confessions. You thank God that there is a faithful explanation of God's word available today. And you study them. Do your catechism homework. Even if mom and dad isn't really saying do it, and by the way, moms and dads, you should be saying do it. Ah, but they're so busy. 
They're so busy. They got so much going on. You don't understand. We're all busy. I have a good friend that always reminds me of that. We're all busy. We're all busy. Which is even more reason why we need to prioritize and we need to do the right things, the important things first. And catechism and Sunday school instruction is essential instruction. And by the way, adult Sunday school instruction is important instruction. We do have other responsibilities from time to time. But God has ordained that we should study the Bible together. When we study the Bible together, when we come under the preaching of the word together, we become like-minded in the faith. And we encourage each other. And we pray for each other. We know each other. Well, God's in control. He exercises his rule sovereignly. And just to let you know, I'm peeling out two pages of manuscript. Let's see how he exercises his rule, Jesus Christ, how he exercises his rule personally. First half of verse 38 says that he, Jesus, was in the stern. Jesus was right there with his disciples in the vessels which was vigorously being tossed to and fro and was filling with water. During the storms of our lives, brothers and sisters in Christ, whether we feel it or not, Jesus Christ is right here with us in a particular way through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's not a fair-weather friend. Some of you children maybe have known fair-weather friends. They know you when everything's going well. And then when things start going bad or when you take a stand, it's like, where did they go? That's a fair-weather friend. Jesus is not a fair-weather friend. He's with us personally. He exercises his rule personally. He's right there with us in the thick and thin of everything. As Jesus was right there with his disciples and they went about proclaiming the gospel, ministering to the spiritual and bodily needs and teaching others to be disciples, so will he be with each one of us as we faithfully fulfill the office of believer. Now listen to me. These disciples of Jesus were with Jesus and they were on a task. For sharing the gospel. They were teaching others to obey the great commission well, that Christ would give. Please listen to me. Please, So many times we get drug off track on our purpose in this life, man. We are not here to have a good time. That is not our job as Christians. Now, praise God. We can enjoy the things that God has given us. We can enjoy a beautiful day. Not at the cost of going to church, by the way. We can enjoy a car, a nice car. We can enjoy a nice house. But we're not living for nice cars. We're not living for nice houses. We are living to make disciples of men and women and children, and teaching them to obey everything Christ has commanded. We are to be teaching people about Jesus. We're to be sharing the gospel. Satan is there always trying to get us off track, thinking about all this other stuff to do. It's not just the pastor's job to share the gospel. It's not just the elder's job. The deacon's job to exercise benevolence. In the office of believer, we're all supposed to be doing that. And listen to me, when we do that, yeah, it is hard work. But it's glorious work. I I can honestly say I love what I do. 
It's hard work. I work long days. Praise God. But I love what I do. The best way we can show our appreciation for Jesus and what he did for us is share the gospel. Carry out the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus Christ is with me. He's with you. He's with us personally. Oh, but you don't understand I'm not a good speaker. You don't have to be a good speaker. You know, this pastor, I got words out of place all the time. Big deal. Just share the gospel. Share it simply. Share your testimony simply. Be looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Parents, train your children in the ways of the Lord. Make disciples out of those children at all costs. Children, willingly be a disciple. Children, share the gospel and show your friends at school what a real disciple of Jesus looks like. Teach them by your example at school. Jesus is with you. He's with you personally. He exercises his rule over you, over us, personally. Finally, let's briefly consider that he exercises his rule compassionately. Verses 40 and 41, we hear Jesus say to them, his disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They just saw him Still the storm. And, and, and they're scared. And he says, why are you so afraid? Have, have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said, who then, is, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now Jesus could have issued a strong rebuke to his disciples. They had seen him do some great miracles. They saw him restore the hand of a withered man, Mark chapter 3. They had seen him heal the paralytic, Mark chapter 2. And then they saw him heal a man possessed by a demon, Mark 1 1 through 27. And then in Mark 1, 29 through 31, they saw Jesus heal Simon's exceptionally ill mother. After that healing, it says the following in Mark 1, verses 32 through 34. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Who is this? Thankfully, Jesus didn't say what some of us might have said if we were in his place, encountering the weakness of his disciples' faith. He didn't start railing on them with hearth words and a heavy hand. Come on, men. You've seen my wisdom and power. Are you bereft of any measure of intellectual endowment? No, the internally begotten Son, ordained of God the Father, and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, our only high priest, and our eternal team, who governs us or rules us by his word and spirit. Lord's Day 12, answer 31. Rule the disciples featured in our text compassionately and as his instruments so must we be compassionate as he uses us to bring his word and spirit to rule over the storms of God's precious children those to whom we minister brothers and sisters at times our memories have been weak sometimes members of the congregation their faith is weak sometimes they don't even look like they have faith still children of God they're still children of God God loves them God loves them 
Why does God love them? Why does God love you? Child of God, disciple of Christ, why does God love you? Why? Because you are the apple of God's eye. You are the apple of God's eye. Cornerstone Congregation, you are the apple of God's eye. Oh, how God loves you and me. Zephaniah 3.17 tells us that God rejoices congregation, God rejoices over you. He rejoices over you with singing. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget Jesus. Don't forget that he rules over all of our storms sovereignly. That he rules over all of our storms personally that he rules over all of our storms as individuals in a congregation. Compassionately. Because he loves us. He loves you. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your great love for us. The great love and giving of your son to die on the cross for our sins. We're thankful that Jesus Christ is our head. He's the head of the church. And that as our head, he rules over us sovereignly, personally, and compassionately. Help us as members of his body to minister compassionately to each other when we fall short in sin, when we are in deep, deep waters of distress, whenever we're in any type of storm of life, help us. Help us to be compassionate like our Savior is to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.